0: So, our next guest is the Honourable Kevin Rudd, AC. Mr. Rudd was first elected as Prime Minister of Australia in 2007. Early initiatives of his government were the signing of the Kyoto Protocol, a parliamentary apology to the Stolen Generations, and the 2020 summit. During the term of his government, Labor also managed to keep Australia out of recession, despite the global financial crisis, as well as commencing the rollout of the national broadband network and the introduction of nationwide early childhood education amongst many other programs. Since leaving office, Mr. Rudd's written two volumes of his autobiography, but has also stayed active in politics. He's the senior fellow of the JFK School of Government at Harvard, where he leads research into US-China relations. In addition, he's the chair of numerous boards, such as the International Peace Initiative. He's the current president of the Asia Society. Now, when last year we first invited Mr. Rudd to outspoken, it was to speak about his timely pamphlet. Call it a pamphlet, but because that's what it really is. The case for courage. A call. No, an exhortation for resistance to the egregious and ubiquitous power of News Corp. But also a commensurate call for a revitalization of Australian politics on many different fronts. A shout out to the Labour Party to not just propose policies for a better, fairer Australia, but also to tear down the myths of the Liberal Party as the natural party of government to stop shying away from giving them the criticism they deserve for the corruption and destruction of the norms of government that have occurred on their watch. Well, several months have passed, and now he's here to talk about The Avoidable War, an extraordinary work which really should be required reading for every politician in the Western world, regardless of affiliation. Lots of books get called important. This one really is because of its depth of geopolitical understanding, but also because of the case it puts for avoiding war. Please welcome Kevin Rudd to Mulaney. Now, Kevin, when, when I, I was making the introduction for the evening, I mentioned the fact that you're from just up the road.
1: It's great to be back home. It's uh, Melanie, I used to play on your local cricket field when I was a kid at Nambour High. And uh, my mother was born in uh, Mapleton, just up the road. And her parents uh, settled the area, uh, settled in the area just, after, just before the First World War. And uh, so this is very much home for me. It's good to be back. But why don't we just get the guy back, Akari, to talk about the Icelandic saga? That sounds like a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fascinating stuff. Uh, I really enjoyed that. So um, good luck with the book. I think it's terrific. <clears throat>
0: So this book, we're here to talk about the avoidable war and it is a fascinating book as well. It concentrates on the relationship between China and the US. Your thesis fundamentally, according to me in a way, is that the cultures of the two superpowers are radically different and suffer from a mutual failure of understanding. You make the point that while we in the West are fairly familiar with how the US sees China, we haven't spent the time and the energy to understand how China sees the West and more how they came to those conclusions. So perhaps I could begin by asking you to give a brief history of their interactions over the last several decades or even 100 years.
1: Wow. <laughs> 25 <laughs> words or less. That's <laughs> <laughs> like the history of the Western novel, please discuss. <laughs> a thousand words in the next half hour. Well, they're kind of like uh, the Americans and the Chinese are like uh, uh, Christians and Vikings and not necessarily in that order. Uh, <clears throat> I say in the book these are two cultures, civilizations and political establishments condemned to uh, mutually assured non-comprehension uh, because there's a fair bit of that. Yeah. On the Chinese side, what's the set of perceptions uh, of the United States? <clears throat> well, China uh, has in its classical history a sinocentric view of its place in the world. Uh, The term China, uh, as used within the discourse in China itself, means middle kingdom. Zhong, guo. Zhong means middle and guo means kingdom. And that was first found, uh, has first been located on on, uh, classical artifacts from about the second or third century before Christ. So this is a long view that China actually is the (coughs) centre of the world and beyond that center, which essentially was regarded as the Han ethnicity in and around, if you look at the geography of China, in and around the Yellow River uh, basin, um, that as you move progressively out from that, you began to encounter the barbarian world. And there were inner barbarians, there were middle barbarians, and there were outer barbarians. Uh, By the way, we're all outer barbarians. In the case of Australians, outrageous barbarians. But, um, <laughs> and so there is a deeply classical Cynocentric uh, view of the world. And for most of the history, apart from their early encounters with Nestorian Christianity in around the 6th or 7th century, um, uh, about the same time as your mates were taking to boats uh, from uh, Ireland to discover uh, the desolate caves of Iceland, and there to live in, it seems, uh, celibate bliss for a hundred years. <laughs> but still managed to procreate. <laughs> ah, the Lord works in mysterious and wonderful ways. <laughs> so there's that kind of view. Then you roll into the modern period, um, Uh, Where there's been little contact with the outside world. Nestorian Christians roll the clock along a thousand years, the arrival of the Jesuits in around about um, the beginning of the 17th century. Fantastic books written by a guy called Matteo Ricci, who was an early Jesuit scholar of China. But really, there's no substantial contact with what we would call the West until um, the British arrive. per medium of the first Opium War of 1839, where the British, always a reasonable people, said, unless you buy our opium and open your borders to import a lot of our opium, we'll blow the crap out of you. (laughs) And you did. (laughs) So things didn't get off terribly well, but the Yanks um, weren't part of that. Uh, And with the United States, The interesting thing about that 19th century history of American engagement with China is that it was non-colonial. The eight European powers colonised huge slabs of China, but the United States did not. So even from the earliest period, um, the United States was seen through a different cultural and political lens uh, to the rest of the Western world, all of whom were seen as rapacious, colonial, uh, barbarians. Yeah. And, but, I mean, move along a little bit to the uh,
0: First World War, there's that incident where the Chinese sent something like 150,000 of their men to help the Allies in Europe on the basis that should the Allies win the war that they would uh, win, that the German occupied territories would be given to the Chinese. But at the Versailles Treaty, they decided to give it to the Japanese instead.
1: In 1919 is a seminal year in the history of China's modern evolution, and frankly it resonates through to today. Why? Um, well, the Chinese empire, after 2,000 years of imperial rule, collapsed in 1911, an early form of republican government took over under Sun Yat-sen. Um, but by that stage, still, you had large slabs of China which was still subject to uh, European colonialism, uh, including the German colonies uh, in China. Um, if you look at the map of that China, that big eastern peninsula called Shandong, by and large, it was German. When you hear of Qingdao beer, Qingdao was a German colony. And so Woodrow Wilson, then the President of the United States after the Americans came into the war after the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, 1917, the Yanks are always late for the wars, (laughs) Um, the uh, first and second, but let's not dwell on that, The, um, the, um, uh, the American president persuaded his Chinese counterpart, Yuan Shikai to deploy 150,000 Chinese labourers to the Western Front to dig trenches and to assist in, let's call it, the the non-combat operations on the front. So China entered the war against Germany. Um, Japan was also an ally of the United States in the First World War and of the British against Germany. (coughs) Uh, All those Australian troop ships that went off to Europe in 1914-15 were escorted by Japanese cruisers and destroyers uh, as part of this combined allied effort. But the deal uh, done between the American legation in Beijing uh, and uh, the Chinese imperial uh, republican government was that when we got to the end of the war and once Germany was defeated that not only would German colonies uh, be returned to Chinese sovereignty, but all European colonies uh, would then be surrendered back to Chinese sovereignty as well. And that is what Woodrow Wilson then disowned. The Japanese threatened to walk out of the peace treaty negotiations in Versailles in 1919, and Wilson capitulated and said, "Um, OK, you get to keep Shandong, you get to keep Qingdao, and the uh, previous German colonies which were in China, we surrendered to you. Earlier that year, in 1919, the early uh, proto-founders of the Chinese Communist Party, guys called Li Da Zhao and and others uh, made public statements, including Mao Zedong, proclaiming Woodrow Wilson to be the man of the century, restoring China's dignity. And then, after he um, uh, ratted and uh, surrendered that territory to the Japanese, um, uh, this produced exactly the reverse uh, sentiment on the part of these early Chinese nationalists and radicals uh, in the Republican period seeking to restore China's sense of national dignity. And then they condemned the United States And the Chinese Communist Party was founded in 1921, in large part as a result. So history has a long arc, um, but this particular arc began its course in those critical events of 1919, 1921.
0: Yeah, and you'd have to say that ever since then, there has been a, a kind of series of policy blunders by the US in reference to China. I'm not, I'm not trying to defend China, I mean, I think we'll get into mm. how China has played into that itself. But there has been these kind of series of opportunities where there could have been better communication, but, but there hasn't been.
1: Well, when the Japanese first invaded China quite brutally in 1931, they'd previously moved into Occupy Manchuria in the northeast of China uh, uh, prior to that. Despite the brutality of the Japanese occupation, and then later again in 1937, there's a further wave of uh, Japanese um, uh, military activity across China, Uh, the United States was indifferent uh, to this. Um, And it only began to take a posture on it much later in the 30s, when the United States famously imposed an oil embargo on Japan which, of course, caused Japan to conclude that it had no future other than to remove the United States from the Pacific, which in turn, in its view, gave rise to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It's a long arc. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a long arc. Now, I notice in the,
0: the title to this book, which um, is not just the avoidable war, it's the, the uh, dangers of catastrophic conflict between the US and Xi Jinping's China. It's not, we're not talking about um, the dangers of conflict between... The US and China. We're talking about the danger between Xi Jinping's China. So there's a, a very specific uh, focus here on Xi Jinping as, a, as the kind of director of Chinese policy. Hmm.
1: The reason I've called the book, by the way, The Avoidable War is that I genuinely, I'm a bit old fashioned. I don't like war. Um, no. I, I'm, I know Peter Dutton likes it, but, you know, <laughs> talks about it all the time. That's. beats of war, boom, 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 boom. And uh, makes makes him feel more hairy-chested in the morning, you know. Uh, I'd get him an Emmanuel Macron stitch-on for his chest. (laughs) If that would make him feel better. But to return to your essential question, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I don't like war, okay? Um, I'm not a pacifist. I just don't like war, right? I'm a realist. I just don't like war. And I start this book, which I launched in Washington just uh, about a month ago now. The first chapter of the book talks about me growing up in Yamundi, which not a huge number of people in Washington have heard of before. (laughs) There's a very narrow boutique interest in in Yamundi. Uh, But uh, I talk about going to Anzac Day dawn services in Yamundi as a little kid in the 1960s. Like... You know, tiny primary school kid with my father, who was a World War II veteran. And uh, I begin by the book by talking about what it was like in those dawn services, marching up the main street of Yamundi with all these guys. I could hear this clink, clink, clink of medals. And um, and then and these were old guys. In the 1960s, these are all World War One vets. Okay. And. Um, and my father, who's a World War II vet, and Dad can never find his medals. Dad was never terribly organised, so, um, so he never wore medals. Um, he put them somewhere, he said. Anyway, <laughs> we found them eventually. Uh, and he said, ah, that's Fred from just opposite the church. He said, Fred's still got the shell shock. Um, and he's got the nerves, which was the term used at the time. And so I always had in my mind's eye as a child looking at Fred, and that stage would have been in his 70s, the guy who lives opposite the church, who was always like this. Um, And that was from the Somme in 1916. And so I begin by saying we've purged all this from our collective memory. We don't have an effective Icelandic saga uh, about the brutality of that period, the industrial-scale carnage, you know. Our town of Yamundi, 22 local boys were killed, total town of 200 people, 10% of the population. Up here in the range, it would have been much the same, I imagine. Um, So that's actually why I have written this thing, because the drumbeats of war, to paraphrase the idiot Dutton, uh, is a narrative being perpetrated by, you know, the far right in many parts of the world at the moment. And so what I seek to construct here is a different but realistic way through. Um, Because if there was war between these two phenomenally powerful countries right now, China and the United States, one with the world's largest military, one with the world's second largest military, one with the world's largest economy, the other with the world's second largest economy, uh, we've not had a war like that, frankly, since about the 16th century. Uh, and it would be industrial-scale carnage. Um, And so I think it behoves us to look intelligently for alternatives.
0: And, I mean, as I'm saying, the argument of the book is that we need to kind of understand each other. I mean, we'll get to your... Towards the end, of the the book is kind of in three parts. There's a kind of introduction, and then there is a central part where you kind of analyse the the ten concentric circles of Xi Jinping's strategic interests, and then we have some, some scenarios for what might happen in the next decade, the decade you call the decade of living dangerously, and finally a kind of conclusion and possible ways that the two superpowers might be able to negotiate. But fundamentally, the idea is that they should actually try and understand each other a little bit more. But central to it, as I say, is this idea of Xi Jinping and, and, and who he is at the centre. I'd just like to question a little bit those 10 concentric circles of strategic interest that he has there. Not, I mean, I, you take about 200 pages of the book to, to deal with so I don't want to go right through the detail of it, but even I, before, I could read it if you'd like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even, even before we kind of get into into that a little bit more. I'd like to question the idea of those circles. Why is it that there is, or or how is it that there is one person who is at the centre of such an extraordinary um, sphere of influence?
1: I think there are in fact two reasons for that. One is the political tradition I described before of imperial China where the notion of the emperor uh, for more than 2,000 years, uh, was um, uh, the son of heaven. Tianzi uh, is the Chinese term. And uh, this resonates to the present age uh, that China requires a paramount leader. But the second reason is contemporary and it's about Marxism-Leninism. Um, uh, if you, the Chinese Communist Party is a Marxist-Leninist party and it's organised on Leninist lines. Uh, which is uh, a very unromantic view of politics in the world. It's power through the barrel of a gun, uh, unceremoniously and unceremonially used to obtain and sustain power. And within a Leninist party, A, the Revolutionary Party takes power by force, Bolshevik Revolution of uh, 1917, Chinese Communist Revolution of 1949. Secondly, having secured power through a vanguard party, you then uh, consolidate your power by eliminating class enemies, uh, which the Chinese did in the anti-landlord movement of 4953, where they actually murdered three or four million people uh, who were regarded as class enemies. And then thirdly, within the party, they establish effectively party secret police uh, who maintain uh, the political hierarchy. And this is <coughs> totally taken out of the Leninist-Stalinist playbook because the Comintern, the International Organization of Communism, which the Bolsheviks set up uh, in 1920, uh, was the vehicle through which the Chinese Communist Party was established in 1921. There was a Russian guy in the room when the first meeting occurred. So all of that, as it were, architecture was incorporated out of the KGB, NKVD, Soviet Communist Party system into the Chinese system. So if you then bring the two traditions together, classical role of Chinese emperor, son of heaven, plus a Marxist-Leninist party, then I I, I use the term Xi Jinping's China deliberately because he rules the roost.
0: And history doesn't look terribly favourably on individuals who have that much power.
1: (laughs) In the Chinese system, not necessarily so. Um, China's first emperor, a guy called Qin Shi Huang, who brought China together and unified it for the first time, is regarded in history as brutal. Um, His seminal achievement, apart from winning a civil war to unite the country in 221 BC, was that uh, when the Confucian scholar class protested about various of his policies, he buried them all alive. Um, that was his attitude to managing uh, dissent. Made your Vikings look like a bunch of softies, and uh, and um, and so. But this guy is regarded in the Chinese historical tradition as a hero because he united the country. So there are different tolerances of violence within culture, within this particular culture, in terms of an ultimate political purpose. And remember the Christian tradition has no permeation to China at all, though the Buddhist tradition interestingly does. Um, and the enormous internal struggles between Buddhism and Confucianism within China, between Buddhism's first arrival in about the third century BC, uh, and the final attempt to liquidate Buddhism at the end of the Tang Dynasty in the 10th century AD, uh, was this great struggle about um, uh, an authoritarian political culture over, let's call it a doctrine of tolerance, uh, embrace, and grace and forgiveness, etc.
0: So if we can just kind of drill down a little bit into these ten concentric circles of, of strategic interest. We start with his control over the uh, Communist Party, which is not China itself. It's the 95 million people or so who are, are the kind of Communist Party who rule China. And then there's the, the state as well then some of his other goals or some of his other uh, serious interests are, are kind of quite laudatory. He he really mm. does want to lift China out of poverty and into the 21st century. He's He has this idea of bringing down the oligarchs and trying to, to level out the inequality of income that mm. is so rife in the country, something that you'd have to say the West has... Failed miserably at as well, but
1: in um, a way. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the book is not a polemical book in certain terms of saying commies evil, capitalists uh, the epitome of virtue. I'm not into that sort of morality play. It seeks to be descriptive of what is the Chinese communist or Marxist-Leninist worldview and what is an American worldview. Um, on the Chinese communist uh, worldview and Xi Jinping's worldview. I do describe it in terms of ten concentric circles of interest. Um, You won't find that in any classical Chinese text. They do not self-describe in those terms. For myself, having dealt with the country for 40 years, since I was a junior woodchuck uh, in the uh, Australian Foreign Service way back when, um, it's my best distillation of what I have gleaned from the system, having analysed it for a long period of time. If I can take three minutes just to say... Please. how do how is this unfolded? Um, any of you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah. So, regard this as the Marxist-Leninist equivalent of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, starting from that which is most essential to that which is least essential but still important. And, you know, Maslow's um, pyramid... Uh, whereas I turn this into a series of concentric circles. Uh, Number one is keep the Communist Party in power and keep yourself as head of the Communist Party. Um, Circle number one. Number two, unite the country. And that explains China's policies towards Xinjiang, Tibet, abuse of human rights, and its intention to use military force when it can to forcibly reunite uh, Taiwan with the mainland. Uh, And that is drawn from the classical tradition as it is from the incomplete revolution of 49, when the nationalists fled after 49 and took up residence on Taiwan, which in those days was still a Chinese province even under nationalist rule. Number three, grow the economy. Make China economically powerful in the world because economic power is the basis of military power. And secondly, Consolidate your political legitimacy domestically by raising people's living standards at home. Forty years of Deng Xiaoping's reforms to the economy in order to allow the private sector to emerge in China, generate more wealth and make people's living standards rise. Four, a new one. Do so sustainably. Your point about these are not all bad, uh, that's not a bad one. And that's because people about ten years ago discovered they couldn't breathe properly in Beijing. It was so polluted. And because of particulate matter in the atmosphere uh, and people increasingly dying of lung-related diseases, the party finally concluded from the science that action on climate change and carbon emissions was essential for their own people, for their own survival, as well as ensuring that the planet became sustainable as well number four. Number five is grow the military uh, in a direction which becomes the most powerful military on earth, problem. Um, (laughs) But their script is they've read the American manual and uh, there's this book uh, written in about 1890 by Mahon, the Americans call him Mahon, we'd call him Maan, but the Americans call him Mahon. Um, which is uh, great powers and the uh, importance of naval power. And essentially you cannot be a great power globally unless you have global naval reach. And Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president of the United States, read this book, The U.S. Great White Fleet, which was built around about the turn of the century, the one that visited these shores in 1907, 1908, and was the birth of America as a global power. So the Chinese have read that script and they're heading in the same direction. Number six, Ensure that all your neighboring states, which in China's case is 14 neighboring states, the largest number in the world, apart from Russia, which also has 14, are benign and compliant. (coughs) That is very much a Chinese imperial tradition about inner barbarians, outer barbarians, and middle barbarians. Doesn't mean you necessarily want to invade them, but it does mean that if they don't behave, quote unquote, uh, that you will use military means. Hence the Chinese ancient tradition of tributary states, which you may have read about as well. If you had Linda Javin here recently, Linda may have ad- certainly addresses that in her short history of China. Number seven, and I'll skip through the last few very quickly, is push the United States out of maritime East Asia and the West Pacific and its uh, network, associated network of military alliances with China... Uh, sorry, with uh, Japan with the Republic of Korea, and if they could get away with it with Australia. Because they regard that as providing the military platform which prevents China from achieving objective number two, which is to bring about national unity with Taiwan. Number eight uh, is push west across the Eurasian continent and create Eurasia as being a zone of unimpeded uh, economic and geopolitical influence for China much more easily executed than the maritime periphery to the east because the United States is not in the continental periphery to the west. Hence the Belt and Road Initiative, if you've read about it. As that is primarily a push across Eurasia and then into Eastern Europe, Central Europe and Western Europe.
0: But, but through a kind of soft power, I don't mean to interrupt your, your thinking. Yeah,
1: by and large, and uh, except there are now emerging some security policy overlays to it the, uh, the uh, creation of dual-purpose ports, which are both military uh, and civilian, as well as offering BRI states China's own form of surveillance um, uh, systems to keep your domestic com- populations under control. So it's not just butter, it's guns and butter. The last two, and uh, number nine, is in the rest of the world, make China uh, the irresistible unavoidable uh, partner of economic choice, uh, so that whether it's in Africa, Latin America, or the rest of Asia, or even Europe, the gravitational pull of the Chinese economy is so great that these countries ultimately um, don't wish to offend China in terms of its core foreign policy interests and aspirations, and they become votes for China in international institutions like the United Nations. So in Africa, if a vote goes up, for example, in the United Nations on a China-related matter, um, for example, on Xinjiang, there are no African votes which come in to defend the human rights interests of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, because China is such a dominant economic player from one end of the continent to the other, all 54 votes that come from the African Union. And the last 10 out of 10 is, if you can get away with one to nine above, over a period of time begin to rewrite the rules of the international system uh, writ large, which is the United Nations, the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, etc., uh, plus other institutions in a manner which is more conducive to China's own national interests and values, which they critique the United States as having done in 1945 after it won the Second World War and created the UN and these institutions in America's own image. So when I say 10 concentric circles of interest from staying in power to how do you redesign the the rules of the international system, that's broadly how it hangs together.
0: And let's drill down into one of them which is the, um, I think it was number three, which is to raise the economy. You actually, while obviously understanding the push that, that they're making there in China, you also have quite serious doubts about whether it's possible to achieve that under the present circumstances because of the nature of um, the falling Chinese growth and and various other, and also the measures that he's putting in to try and take the power away from
1: the private sector. Yeah, that's that's a critical question right now. Like in 2022, what is the future of the Chinese economic growth model? Uh, Many of us for the last generation or more have grown up with an underlying assumption in our minds which is, China's inexorable rise: huge population, massive resources, highly energetic people, and, unlike Mao Deng said to the Chinese private sector, "Go out there and earn a quid," and they did. Okay, and it's been remarkably successful. So, when I first went to our work in our embassy in Beijing <clears throat> in 1984, uh, not all that long after leaving Danbor High School. Um, The Chinese embassy was the same size in absolute terms as the Australian... The Chinese economy was the same size as the Australian economy. That was in 1984. Now it's on track to be larger than the United States by about 2030, assuming its current growth levels are sustained. It's been a huge transformation. And lastly, through Deng Xiaoping, finally taking the lid off the Chinese private sector to go out and, frankly, trade at home and abroad. Enter Xi Jinping in 2014 and his concern is as follows, or 2013, I should say, his concern is as follows. If we continue to allow that, what then happens uh, is that the Communist Party ultimately becomes redundant. Go back to principle number one in my ten concentric circles of interest. And he's saying the more we have, do you know Jack Ma from Alibaba? Uh, People like Jack Ma who are Chinese zillionaires who become alternative centres for loyalty, influence and power in the Chinese system. It ultimately then threatens the political uh, domination of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party within the system. So what Xi Jinping has done in the last five years in particular has slowly moved the centre of gravity of Chinese economic policy increasingly to back towards the party and the state and away from the chi- private sector, um, and away from being an open international trading country to one which is more wedded to the principles of national economic self-reliance, and reinvented state and enterprise policy in a way which begins to crowd out once again what the private sector was doing. And one of the consequences of all that, which is I'm going to maximise or reimpose my political control over the economy, the consequence, however, is yes, you've achieved that, but you've also throttled economic growth. And (laughs) and innovation as well, that... that Growth, innovation, incentive, enterprise, that whole box and caboodle, whole box and caboodle (laughs) of stuff. And so... I began first noticing this as I travelled around China a few years ago, about 2018, when just talking to people uh, in the provinces, and then suddenly they began saying different things to me about their lack of trust in policy continuity in the centre, as they were getting different signals about what was permissible. Deng Xiaoping's great axiom for 35 years was, quote, it's glorious to be rich, unquote. <laughs> that was Deng's communism. And Deng said, it doesn't matter whether a cat is black or white so long as it catches a mouse, quote, unquote. That was how strict Deng was on Marxist-Leninist ideology, not, okay. And so, uh, whereas Xi Jinping has said, you allow that to happen, the Communist Party, like what happened with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev, slides into irrelevance, decline, corruption, and then collapse. And so in a Leninist reaction to that analysis has reimposed party power, but runs a grave risk of killing the goose that's laid the golden egg in terms of the ability of the economy to continue to grow. So here is the key point in my judgment, and I hint about this in part of the book, because it's such a recent change in the last several years, uh, really, is that if the growth rate, which in the last 30 years has averaged about 10% per year, hence why you go from being an economy the size of Australia to one being comparable to that of the United States, to in the last decade, which is Xi Jinping's first decade in office, he came into office at the end of 2012, right, Um, is that in the last decade, the average growth rate has fallen from double digits to somewhere around about six, Now the projection by two recent studies of what happens with China's overall growth level for the 2020s is that it may actually now fall to somewhere around about three, which is normal trend growth for an advanced economy. Even though China is not an advanced economy, it's still a low middle income economy. And where all that goes to is this, add change in policy, Favouring the state, favouring the party against the private sector. Role in demography, China's population is ageing rapidly. Um, Its workforce peaked in size in 2014. The population will peak in size in about 2027. Uh, It has now uh, got an average age uh, which is right up there with advanced economies and the uh, birth rate now is at a record low of about 1.3, 1.4. Much lower than Australia's natural birth rate. So therefore, shrinking population, shrinking workforce participation, and declining productivity growth because the private sector has been pulled out of the equation, innovation, enterprise and the rest. Now, if those things come together, so these recent studies have concluded, then if we end up with a growth rate of between 2 and 3%, guess what, by the time we get to the 2030s, the 2040s, the 2050s, it's arguable whether China will ever be larger than the US economy. Or if it is, maybe 10% bigger, but never getting bigger than that. So the idea that we've all had for such a long period of time that would end up being this overwhelming, gigantic, irresistible, juggernaut force compounding uh, in growth uh, for decades eternal because of this massive population uh, underpinning it all is now open to serious challenge.
0: And then this is where we kind of move out of the centre of an influence of China because we start getting into the geopolitical scene is that you posit the idea that Xi Jinping, when faced with this sort of, Um, collapse, or not this collapse, this decline, should I say, in, in growth, might employ the weapon of nationalism as a way of maintaining, number one, his power over the state. And then that nationalism comes into conflict with the US.
1: It's a very complex Rubik's Cube that we're about to enter into, with China external, China internal slash economy, the United States slash does the idiot Trump come back or son of Trump uh, or Trump-like figure.
0: Or daughter of Trump.
1: Yes, right. (laughs) Jesus, Mary and Joseph. And uh, and, uh, so this is a complex set of variables. But um, the book is in part written to try and provide a joint strategic framework from a realist perspective which could be adapted by both Beijing and Washington to navigate what I call the decade of living dangerously, the 2020s, to get us through to 2030 without blowing each other's brains out over Taiwan or anything else. Secondly, um, if we can manage to do that, then by the time you get to the 2030s, there are a whole bunch of new variables at play will that which I've just described, which is the levelling out of China's economic growth, have become a new dynamic, both in reality and perception, so that neither the United States nor the democracies of the world any longer fear a China which is not simply going to become um, the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk over towering everything else, point one, Point two, if its economy then begins to falter in terms of compounding growth, then it means that it can no longer afford comfortably to invest in the same order of magnitude in its military. So that thirdly, when you do get to the big decisions of the 2030s, assuming Xi Jinping remains in power, which I think on balance he will, then will the advice to him be in the 2030s from his own professional military Um, comrade, I'm not confident we can pull off Taiwan because we don't have the military margin uh, which I would want to have in order to guarantee an absolute win. So part of the method and the madness in a book like this is get us through this really dangerous decade and factor in the new realities of the 2030s as we begin to approach it. But the danger in the logic that I've just advanced is that Xi Jinping uh, who is a good Marxist-Leninist dialectician, thinking about the unity of opposites and action and reaction and all the way in which Leninists are taught how to think, says, it could be how it's unfolding, therefore I should move earlier. <laughs> that is the one cautionary note to Kevin from Queensland's very helpful contribution <laughs> to the debate. <coughs> Look. I want to bring in a kind of, a bit of a
0: wild card here for a minute because one of the circles that you were talking about, I think it was seven or eight or something, was this idea of China um, becoming free of the institutions of the West. So it's mm. creating its own, instead of having the dollar as the, as the currency of, uh, the, the central currency, that they would actually have the, 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 the one, the, um, the Chinese currency but also separate from the United Nations and all the various different other than the IMF and all the things. So the idea of that seemed to be that should they decide, for example, to invade Taiwan, um, that Western sanctions would have no power over them. Now, in the present circumstance we're in at the moment where we're entering, what, it, what is it, the eighth or ninth week of, of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, one of the arguments I have heard uh, a lot is this that um, the, the stumbling that Russia has made and the force of the sanctions that the West has imposed upon Russia will be giving Xi Jinping thought, oh, giving him pause for thought. Do, do, you, do you agree with that? What do you think about the present geopolitical situation when you throw Russia in?
1: The Chinese, as they always do, will make a careful study of Ukraine. Um, The Chinese are not impartial on Ukraine, they basically back the Russians. Um, That's why they refuse to call it either a war or an invasion, Uh, and why they've abstained on every vote in the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly, condemning um, what Russia has done, even though it's in patent violation of Article 2 of the UN Charter, which prohibits one state from invading the sovereign territory of another state. But when the Chinese look at Ukraine through a different lens, which is what lessons are there for the future of Taiwan, I think there are three points which are relevant. One is, in their mind's eye, they will say, we're working to our own timetable on Taiwan anyway. And our timetable, preferred timetable, in my judgment, Kevin's judgment, uh, is um, late 20s, early 30s, when they would assume that their military balance against the United States is more advantageous, their economic balance against the United States is more advantageous, and most critically, that they will have achieved by that stage greater financial independence of the US dollar denominated global financial system by floating by the late 2020s the renminbi, making it into a global currency, a global reserve currency if they can, and thereby liberating themselves from the risk of U.S. dollar-denominated sanctions being imposed against them as the Americans have imposed against Russia. So I think that is kind of um, the, uh, the script in terms of the way in which China would play it. I think the really deep learning uh, from Ukraine by the Chinese so far is that invading another country is really hard. Um, they looked at what the Yanks did with Iraq and said, well, that was pretty easy. All we've got to do is study what the Yanks did with Iraq and then we'll just do that to the Taiwanese. Um, this is the War of 2003 I'm talking about. That crazy Howard War which some of us opposed, um, um the weapons of mass destruction which weren't there, remember that? The, um, uh, 40,000 Iraqi civilians then lay dead. But let's not dwell, dwell on the detail. Um, But I think what the Chinese military, at least, and the Central Military Commission, which ultimately provides the advice to the political leadership of the country about the doability of military projects would say is that that was a land-based operation across the border by the, quote, superlative Russian Red Army against uh, the Ukrainian bunch of conscript dad's army has-beens. Um, and it's ended as a complete military catastrophe so far. But let's see what Putin does in phase two of the war in the Donbass. Whereas in China, what we're talking about is something infinitely more complex. It's a maritime invasion of Taiwan. The straits are 180 kilometers wide. That is not just a piece of, that's not Morton, that's not going out to Straddy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, It's it's a ways offshore. Uh, It would be the largest amphibious operation since D-Day. and A lot can go wrong uh, on a stretch of water like that. So I think the Chinese system militarily will give this some reflection. But ultimately uh, what worries me often about so-called men of history uh, is that when they start to age and the clock draws down, they feel that they're time remaining to execute the historical mission is now sliding through their fingers. Hence why I think, but don't know, Putin acted when he has. Uh, and Xi Jinping, by the time we get to the end of the 20s into the early 30s, would be in his late 70s. Because um, we're talking about um, a guy who's now about 68 years old. Um, and so therefore, if he is leader at the time, these sort of leaders have this crazy idea that you know they have the mantle of history on their shoulders and they've got to uh, fundamentally change the map before they go off to meet Marx in the next kingdom.
0: Mm-hmm. So, look, I'm, I'm conscious of the time here and I want to throw... I'm sure the floor is just bristling with questions, but I, so I want to keep you just one little bit more because the conclusion to your book, the, we, we run through... The ten scenarios that you have for this decade of living dangerously, five of which, unfortunately, involve war. Um, but but then you come up with some ideas. Some what you you have this term you call um, managed strategic manage strategic competition, which is this idea of how the two superpowers might be able to negotiate the next 10 decade, 10 years, sorry, and, and if I might just add one thing that I thought was very interesting was this comment that some people were accusing you of kicking the can down the road, and you said, what's wrong with that? And I, I, I heartily agree with that, you know, if you can postpone war to the 2030s, well then we might find ourselves in a completely different situation where it's no longer necessary. So, but anyway, please. Could you elucidate a bit more on managed strategic yeah, just competition? just before
1: we go to Q&A from our friends in the audience uh, here. Um, managed strategic competition is not a piece of rocket science. I mean, I went to Nambour High. We don't do rocket science down there. Um, the, um, uh, we barely did science, <laughs> rocket science. The, um, so, uh, uh, it's got four principles. Number one. If you're in an environment of strategic competition where the competition is about who ends up as the dominant power regionally and globally, then you can either have unmanaged strategic competition where there are no rules of the road, no guardrails, no nothing, and everything's just a rolling voyage of discovery, of biff in the front bar or the backyard, and it may end well, but it could well end catastrophically. Uh, that's basically how World War One started. Um, uh, or two, you have what I describe from a realist's perspective as managed strategic competition. What does that mean? That means that there are de minima uh, rules of the road, de minima mutual understandings, de minima guardrails. And what does that mean? In the case of what I describe as five sets of strategic red lines around Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, the Korean Peninsula, and cyber and space, where all sorts of attacks can occur which are inherently destabilising. For example, taking out someone's telecommunications system. So tomorrow morning the Pentagon wakes up and they can't see anything because the Chinese have taken out the satellite network. At that point you go to code red and start firing something because you think you're going to be subject to an inbound attack. So that's why that's listed in this series. So what I have said is, Rather than this all being a case of just push and shove and see where equilibrium lands us through a voyage of discovery uh, where you've got a whole lot of metal rubbing up against metal either on the seas, in the air or in space uh, each of which could trigger an incident becoming escalated becoming crisis, becoming conflict, becoming war far better that each side actually articulates what its own Irreducible strategic red lines are in each of those categories to each other. The other side won't agree with them, but they should know them. At present, it's a guessing game, and I think that's destabilising. For example, one strategic red line would be a mutual prescription on a cyber attack against the core economic infrastructure of the other. For example, they took out your electricity generation system tomorrow. Everything collapses, right? Boom. Gone. Um, That would be one such red line. The second part of the joint strategic framework called managed strategic competition is short of um, lethal conflict, then both sides should embrace non-lethal competition across all other domains. The rest of national security policy, foreign policy influence, um, trade, investment, technology the race for who's going to have the brightest, sharpest, and buzziest um, semiconductors and artificial intelligence, and ideology, frankly, Uh, Marxist-Leninist authoritarianism, or liberal democratic capitalism, or social democratic capitalism, uh, as a worldview underpinning the future of the international system. And then the third and final domain is what I describe as Um, a managed strategic competition framework which creates still political and diplomatic space for those narrow areas of collaboration which are still necessary to survive the planet, global common goods. Climate action? These are the two world's largest polluters, for God's sake. The next pandemic, given how much we bugger the last one, um, there was a massive... um, Uh, global market failure, if ever there was, in terms of dealing with uh, COVID-19. It should never have turned out that way. And thirdly, global financial stability, because as a creature of the GFC myself, um, which is when my hair finally turned white, um, and having to go out and guarantee every Australian's bank deposits and every single savings bank in the country, uh, a cool $3 trillion guarantee you provide with your own name, Kevin Rudd at the bottom. Uh, brackets, Nambour High, close brackets. Uh, let me tell you, Global Financial Stability has got a lot going for it. <laughs> That's managed strategic competition.
0: And, and look, it seems to me that, that it, it, it's a, a great advice. Do you think, I don't mean to be facetious here, do you think anybody's going to read it in Beijing? I mean, is this book going to be available to, I mean, I understand you've sent a whole lot of copies to the Congress?
1: Yeah, well, uh, because I normally live in the United States, I run an American think tank, which is based in New York, but we've got offices in Washington and around the US and around Asia uh, called the Asia Society, uh, which has been around for about 65 years in the US. Um, So I've spent time already with the administration in Washington um, and um, giving people copies of the book. Um, So uh, I can't guarantee it's been read because people are busy. Uh, but they certainly know the argument because I've summarised it in a piece I wrote for Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, which people do read because it's three or four thousand words as opposed to a hundred thousand words. Um, as for Beijing, there is a marketplace for this because they are searching at the moment for a framework for managing the U.S. relationship for the twenties, because they don't want to go to war in the twenties either, nor, nor neither do the Americans. So you've got two systems kind of struggling in the dark at the moment, looking for a framework through which to anchor the relationship. And all this is is a humble attempt to say, here are some ideas for you guys to play with. The book's being put into Chinese, um, so um, how freely it'll be circulated in Beijing, because I have a lot of critical things in there to say about the Chinese as well, as well as being critical of the Americans. Um, how freely available it would be, I don't know, but in Chinese political and policy elites, it'll be red because that's what they do. Um, It's a very studied culture on questions of strategy and grand strategy. Does it actually move the dial? I'm not sure. The Secretary of State of the United States, Tony Blinken, is delivering um, um, uh, the administration's China strategy in a public speech in Washington on Friday, our time. Uh, delivered at the Asia Society. If I was in New York, I'd be hosting him on a stage like this at George Washington University. Um, My deputy will be doing that because I'm back here uh, playing up badly in the Australian domestic elections. Uh, (laughs) Oh, and flogging a book. Uh, so, um, So we'll have some early insight as to how the United States intends to play this. Uh, it won't be the, the last word and whatever Secretary Blinken has to say on Friday will be the public document as opposed to what will be the uh, internal document of the administration on which it's based, which will be of a classified nature. So I don't know, but I've always had a view in life, never die wondering. If you think there's a problem, have a go. That's how I end up as Prime Minister. I thought there was a problem, have a go. Uh, may not end up perfectly, um, but I don't, I never want to be in the business of dying wondering.
0: Here, here. Now, look, so let me see if there's any questions out here in the room. We have two just straight there in the back. And then we've got another over here. And then we probably could say one there, one there, one there. Do we have any from this side of the room, this one from over there, and then this one here? And that would do. I think that will get us to 8 o'clock, okay? Sorry if you didn't get your hand up quickly, That we've got six questions. Uh, thanks for that, Rod. Um My question, like a lot of Australians at the moment, very concerned about Dutton's warmongering (laughs) and all the rhetoric that goes with that.
2: Um, How do you see Australia building a friendship with China? And shouldn't we be doubling our diplomacy and finding ways to actually influence them through rather soft means and
0: sort of win their hearts and minds through
2: rational conversations rather than the kind of warmongering rhetoric that they're hearing from us at the moment. Here's my approach
1: to this question. It's a really important one given that we're in the midst of a national election. Um, And I'll be very brief in answer to these because I imagine our time's limited. Number one, I, the book reflects a non-romantic view of Xi Jinping's worldview. I simply seek to be descriptive. Because I'm a Chinese language speaker and reader um, and because I now run an American think tank, I actually read this stuff that they put out internally uh, in China. And the ambition which China has to be the dominant power in East Asia, West Pacific, is very clear in China's internal literature and to supplant the United States. And that actually has material implications for Australia. Look what's happened most recently in the Solomons, for example. So the question, however, for Australia, therefore, is what to do about it. Now, Dutton's response is, um, let let me show you how much hair I have on my chest, Uh, and his response is to get out a megaphone every Tuesday morning and go (laughs) scream and shout um, and... And, uh, and if you scream and shout hard enough and long enough, that will somehow add up to a policy. Well it doesn't, it's, it's just bullshit. Um, and it's only domestically politically directed so that uh, the conservative side of politics in Australia is seen as the party of national security um, and as a result um, that somehow the problem is then materially resolved. It's not. It's the politics of illusion. Um, so what should be the substantive response, which I think is the question which has been asked? The substantive re- response, in my view, is uh, what we did in government, and would do again in government. When we were in government, when I was Prime Minister, we had massive disagreements with the Chinese. You're looking at the bloke who blocked the Chinese attempt to at take over Rio Tinto. Okay, this is not a small thing. This is Australia's second-largest resource company. You're looking at the bloke who, um, in the Defence White Paper of 2009, said we should double the submarine fleet, increase the surface fleet by a third, because China's military expenditures in uh, the South China Sea and more broadly were beginning to get out of control. Um, I'm the guy who, in Beijing, delivering a speech at Peking University in Chinese, said China needs to protect the human rights of the Tibetan people. This was not welcome, but you know something? I didn't do this every day of the week. I didn't go out there with a megaphone every second Thursday just for the fun of it. Most of our disagreements, including banning the Chinese from uh, injecting hardware into the national broadband network, I took that decision as well, through Huawei, the company. What we did was we simply told the Chinese this is what we disagreed with them on and we weren't going to do this, and we would issue a minor press release somewhere we would not turn it into Barnum and Bailey's three-ring circus, which is what Dutton does, because Dutton's not interested in managing the complex diplomacy of all of this. He's interested in the domestic political circus in order to make himself more powerful within the Liberal Party in his eternal competition with Morrison to see who can be dumb and dumber. Uh, and, And then secondly, to go out to all those Liberal Party branch members who watch... Sky Television of an evening, and uh, and eat raw meat, and uh, and uh, conduct various rituals uh, that they do among themselves in order to feel good about hating the Chinese that evening. Sort of thing. So for us, it's just a different beast. So in every meeting with the Chinese, I've always said, we believe in universal human rights. You don't. We're going to disagree on that. Number two. Uh, we're an ally of the United States, we have been for a hundred years and it enhances our national security. We don't always agree with the Americans, Vietnam, Iraq, I said, but it does enhance our national security interests. Three, we would like to trade with you as much as possible. Four, uh, we want to work with you collaboratively in all the institutions of global governance, climate, global financial management, global public health, which is what we did when we in- got Australia a position at the G20 when I was Prime Minister. Uh, we did so on the basis of um, uh, working with the Chinese. <laughs> we used to work with the Chinese leadership's team like this throughout the GFC um, through, uh, through the mechanism of the G20. And that's what you can do if you put your mind to it. Um, and finally, uh, final principle is if you're going to have a disagreement with the Chinese, hunt in packs don't go solo wolf, which is what um, Idiot Features, the Prime Minister, did. Um, you know, the this, this stuff that he came up with, with uh, let's have a global independent investigation of the origins of COVID, which is basically how much shall we hate the Chinese tomorrow, close brackets. I'd actually signed a public letter with 250 other international leaders in the New York Times calling for exactly the same thing about three weeks before. Uh, but we did it together. Now, if Dutton was just not interested in making himself look hairy-chested and he's in eternal internal competition with Dutton for who looks the most uh, rabid on national security, um, then what he would have done is spend another week on the old Alexander Graham Bell, uh, talking to international leaders using something very old-fashioned called diplomacy. Um, and you get together a group of 20, 30, 35 other countries, the Europeans, the democracies of Asia, some elsewhere in the world, saying we really do need to have an independent global inquiry. Had he done that, Australia would never have been individually, nationally targeted by the Chinese, which is what happened. There are five basic principles for how you conduct a relationship with an authoritarian state.
0: Now, listen, we need to take a question over here. I'm, I'm passing it to this gentleman here because he's about to go and live in Beijing. Okay. So I, thought, I thought, thought, he might be, he thought he might have an interesting question.
2: Yeah, I'm actually going to work for the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, but just to go back to the past, right. and a quick disclaimer I'm, here... I know the boss of the AIIB. Okay, yeah. well, speaking of bosses, you used to be my... Chin-in-tune. You used to be my boss. Um, I work for the Department of Climate Change... Um, I used well, to be your boss. The, well, it was a circular arrangement, but it didn't end very well. So, but you know something? We blame the Tories for that. I was actually working in public affairs, so um, apologies for that. We didn't do a very good job, obviously. No,
1: no, that was, but, that, that was Abbott and the budgie smugglers. That was one of them.
2: But <laughs> the, the question I did have was actually related to climate change. Um, so looking at... Um, Climate change policy, looking at even Australian climate change policy and seeing how difficult it 's been with democracy. some people say we need a authoritarian uh, government such as china 's to actually have real lasting results uh, on climate change, getting away from the various um, difficulties that obviously involve with a democracy. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that
1: no i couldn 't disagree more fundamentally um, the uh if we were having this meeting uh, in Beijing tonight, you know, we'd have secret police all around the side of the room uh, for fear that we were saying something which would be destabilising of the long-term hold on power of the Chinese Communist Party. And I don't think anyone here would accept that as a price to pay in order to deliver a better outcome, if indeed is a better outcome, uh, from a unitary and authoritarian system of government on climate. Secondly, I mean, as you know from your time working with us, In Copenhagen, the Chinese were complete bastards on climate change. Uh, I may have said something colourful at the time. (laughs) I was reported to have said something colourful. I couldn't possibly comment on whether I said that or not. (laughs) But some said that I did. Um, And because they torpedoed the agreement. I mean, I didn't sleep for three days in Copenhagen trying to get that thing through. And we got something called the Copenhagen Accord, But you recall, Broke the back of the whole question of 2 degrees, 1.5 degrees centigrade for the first time. Uh, got developed and developed in countries to both agree that they both had to act, not just developed countries. And thirdly, a global system of measurement, reporting, and verification. And fourthly, from memory, a global climate adjustment fund becoming the Green Fund. And we got that through. And then the Chinese, backed by the Indians, blew it up on the conference floor. So uh, so the Chinese have been bad under an authoritarian system in the past. Uh, present they are better, but if, I, if you look carefully at what's been done in the implementation of China's climate arrangements in the 14th five-year plan right now, it's um, reasonable, but it's not brilliant. And it certainly doesn't produce the set of reductions necessary to keep the planet under 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, by the end of the century. Um, but it's much better than we were dealing with before. So I don't accept the um, implicit wisdom which I've heard in other uh, periods in history, uh, which is at least with Mussolini we got the trains to run in time and therefore with Xi Jinping we'll get action on climate change. So too much by way of sacrifice to, let's call it the freedoms, and frankly the freedoms of um, that were earned in a hard process of history from the Enlightenment uh, to the present, effectively from uh, the American and French revolutions of the late 18th century through to the present and the the fact that we all have an ability to vote on the 21st uh, of May, including women, for God's sake. I mean, that was never allowed until, you know, 100 years ago. And prior to that, it was only men of property and not um, working-class jobs like me who could vote. So, um, you know, for all those reasons, we should cherish the freedoms we have in the democracy and exercise them. And also cherish compassion and grace, going back to the Icelandic sagas, uh, delivered to those crazy Vikings by those Celtic monks from way back when, because grace and compassion are not live concepts within Marxist-Leninism. It's about eliminating class enemies. Uh, By the way, the institution you're working for is a very good one. Uh, And the boss, uh, Jin has, who's a Shakespeare scholar, uh, who's Chinese, um, speaks impeccable English and can recite to you anything from Henry V Part 1 and (laughs) 2. He's desperate to create an institution which is not subject to Chinese Communist Party control. And so far, so good for him.
0: I think we'll have to end on that note because we're way past time and Mr. Rudd has some um, huge number of engagements at the moment. He's very grateful for him taking the time to come up to Milani. So please put your hands together, please. <laughs> <laughs> to